and welcome to the latest instalment of the Invivo podcast. My name is Lucy Ellis-Tates and I'm the executive editor for Invivo. I'm joined in this episode by Dr Peter Jackson, a leader in the field of infectious disease drug development and antimicrobial resistance policy. This podcast and all of our other podcasts are available on the Sightline channel on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn and Spotify. Peter Jackson is the CEO of the UK-based biotech Infex, which is developing a diverse pipeline of innovative best-in-class and first-in-class drug candidates to address the urgent global shortage of novel anti-infective treatments. Peter is a member of the Project Advisory Group for the new antibiotic reimbursement trial being run by NHS England and NICE. He's an expert advisor to the Milken Institute in Washington, D.C., and he also sits on the board of the Beam Alliance, which is a network of European biotechnology companies focused on AMR and working with policymakers at member states to bring similar reimbursement reforms into place across the EU. In this exclusive discussion for Invivo, we explore the current state of AMR, the new Netflix subscription model in the UK for antibiotic reimbursement, and future challenges for biotechs in the anti-infective space. We also discuss the challenges brought about by COVID-19 that we're still seeing in the biotech industry today, and what can be learnt from the pandemic for industry, health services and governments alike. Infex has an interesting origin story. Um, Could you explain a bit more about how the company came to be, I think it was 2016 era, uh, and how it's evolved for today? Yeah, Infex did have an interesting start. This was at the same time as two things happened. One was AstraZeneca decided to relocate from Alderley Park in Cheshire down to Cambridge, UK, which meant that uh, there were were potentially 2,000 or so uh, jobs, highly experienced, skilled pharma developers um, that were potentially moving or weren't going to move and might lose the jobs. That was one thing. The other thing, of course, was the huge emphasis at that time on the rising tide of antimicrobial resistance, in particular, the seminal report from Jim O'Neill that was commissioned by David Cameron, Prime Minister Cameron and George Osborne, the uh, Chancellor, Finance Minister at the time. Uh, George Osborne happened to be our local MP as well. Um, So he had both problems on his table and we met with him one day. Uh, I told him about this problem of AMR and he basically said, well, what are you going to do about it? So I uh, pulled together a group of folks from the universities, local authorities uh, from the industry. So basically public private initiative. And the idea was to create a new venture called the AMR Centre. So we did that uh, with some initial pump priming priming from from the public. Uh, But then increasingly, um, we we started to bring in private investment. Two years ago now, we changed the name from the AMR Centre to Infect Therapeutics. Firstly, to emphasise that uh, we were now doing uh, programmes wider than just AMR. So, for example, we have an anti-coronavirus programme and we're looking at antifungals. Uh, But also, just to emphasise to the outside world that we were actually a a for-profit biotech and the AMR centre sounded a bit like some sort of government department. So um, we changed our name to Infex and I've been chief exec through, through the whole of that time. 
Uh, the aim of the AMR Centre originally was to build the farmer development organisation that didn't exist in the UK and still doesn't have. There are no big farmer um, AMR research groups in the UK as far as we're aware. And uh, we've now built that up at, at Infex to over 20 people, uh, experts that we've gathered from Big Pharma and other biotech in biology, chemistry and translation into clinical uh, science. And, and sadly, even though we're only 20 odd people, that's one of Europe, Europe's largest groups working in this area, which is one of the problems which I'm sure we'll come on to uh, later in the conversation, Lucy. Yes, I think we're, we'll definitely have a lot more to talk about there uh, and why this model is uh, such a challenge uh, for biotech. You mentioned a bit there about the change of name uh, leading in with the change of sort of direction of the company as well. So what is the strategy behind the pipeline uh, and development and your approach to partnering as well? So right from the beginning, as I've said, we focus on translation so we don't get involved in uh, in the early discovery and we've been very clear that we don't want to become a pharmaceutical marketer at the end to grow into a, a new biopharma company that's commercializing drugs so consequently the task that we focus on is matching inter interesting technology that we can access license acquire or partner with and match those to uh, unmet need and markets. But in our case, that means licensability. So we absolutely want to work with uh, major pharma companies uh, because they have the infrastructure, know-how, regulator experience, um, um, supply chain and so on to be able to exploit technologies globally. Many of the failures that, that have blighted the AMR antibiotics world over the past five years or so have been companies that have effectively had to go it alone and try to commercialize their own drugs that costs an awful lot of money needs an awful lot of expertise and you know, has been shown to be an extremely difficult path to tread the other approach is that um, you know, we're going for novelty so we try and identify new technologies uh, new interesting uh, leads that are coming out of academia or, or other SMEs. And, and just as an example, our two drugs that are most advanced at the moment, uh, neither of them are actually antibiotics. So we, we tend to talk to talk about AMR drugs rather than antibiotics. The uh, first programme, uh, which we call Respex, is currently in phase one, generating really good data, uh, good safety and PK data. This is, uh, it's an antibody, it's an antivirulence, uh, anti-pseudomonas antibody. Uh, this is to be used as a preventative treatment for patients with uh, long-term uh, lung disease, bronchiectasis. And uh, around 20 to 30 percent of these patients eventually become long term colonized with pseudomonas. This results in serious flare ups, exacerbations that uh, require hospitalization in the moderate to severe patients. 
there's a, a four-year 40% mortality rate. So this is really bad news. And the, uh, of course, uh, with these exacerbations, patients are, are treated with cocktails of antibiotics, which drives more resistance, which uh, eventually leads to a downhill spiral uh, and ultimately um, uh, death for these patients. So uh, the second drug that we have is uh, in currently in preclinical development, aiming uh, to enter the clinic next year. And this is a drug called Metex. And this focuses on resistance bypass. So it switches off the resistance mechanisms in an important resistant category called metallobetalactamases. So it's uh, an MBLI, metallobetalactamase inhibitor. It's no antibiotic um, effect whatsoever on its own. Uh, but in combination with existing drugs, this brings a whole range of, of uh, new drugs into play. So uh, a handful of, of drugs that have been rendered ineffective by uh, this uh, MBL resistance mechanism uh, can be brought back into play and really rebuild a, uh, a new arsenal of drugs against this uh, emerging class of superbugs. I think that's really interesting, the point there, that there's much more to tackling AMR than just new antibiotics. What is the state of antimicrobial resistance today? Obviously, you, you're dating back uh, infects, particularly the AMR Centre 2016, your work earlier than that as well. How much progress has been made in the UK and globally in tackling the problem? Yeah, I'll I'll just mention the global picture first, Lucy, and that's you know, at G7, G20, since 2016, you know, we've we've had widespread agreement internationally on what the problem is and how we need to fix it. And of course, the heart of all of this is that we need new drugs. We need new treatments for um, these uh, resistant bacterial infections. But we know absolutely uh, the inevitability of evolution, uh, that uh, any new drugs, the bugs will start to evolve and generate new resistance. So what we need to do is spend hundreds of millions to develop new drugs and then not use them. And this is a, a, a fundamental problem for the structure of the, the whole biopharma industry. So we know that we need to fix how these drugs are rewarded and paid for. And that has to be different from the uh, the traditional uh, way of, of of invest and then reap your reward by selling selling drugs in the marketplace. And I'm sure we'll we'll pick a bit more apart on uh, on what the new models might look like. Um, but the state of AMR really is uh, at the moment dominated by small to medium enterprises. So 85, 90% of the global pipeline is in the hands of SMEs. And I, I'm proud to be uh, a vice president of the European Beam Alliance. So earlier this year, uh, Beam conducted a survey of all of its members, the uh, Beam Barometer. And that really highlighted just what a precarious state the AMR pipeline is in, in in Europe, and I'm sure this is the same around the rest of the world. Just to give you a few snippets from that, uh, 
only 24% of the BEAM members thought that it was feasible in the current climate to raise funding for preclinical development. And only 19% thought it was feasible to raise money for clinical development. So that 75 to 80% of all the AMR companies in Europe, uh, including the UK, uh, 75 to 80% think that it's difficult to impossible to actually raise funding at the moment. And if you look at the impact on those companies, 33% of all of the BEAM members in the survey have less than 200,000 euros in cash. That translates to two thirds of the members having less than one year's cash runway. And uh, only 24% have got more than two years worth of money. You'll see from that, there's a perfect storm here. The failures in the AMR ecosystem, the fallout and the aftermath of COVID-19 and the current financial cost of living crisis is more or less strangling Europe's SMEs. And that's 90% of the European AMR pipeline at risk. And that's something that has to be very urgently addressed. We're seeing, uh, obviously, the challenges in the economic market for companies in different spaces. But I imagine in areas where it's been difficult in the past to raise funds and is a more challenging environment, um, the impact is much higher. Part of the issue you mentioned there as well is this um, the model for accessing the market once you are through development, if you're developing an antibiotic or um, products and in infectious diseases. One example of change at the moment is the NHS rolling out a subscription model. How does this work in practice? And can you explain a bit more about that? Yes, the UK really has been taking the lead uh, not only in the diplomacy, but actually trying to address this uh, reimbursement challenge that I mentioned earlier. So I was very fortunate to be uh, nominated to join the project advisory group for the subscription trial um, that NHS England and NICE ran um, uh, two, three years ago now. And behind that trial was a lot of work, detailed work on how to revalue uh, antibiotics, AMR drugs, uh, not only in terms of the the conventional health health technology assessment metrics, but also adding in the societal value of having new antibiotics on the shelf and almost like an insurance value. Don't forget that AMR and infections don't just, it's not just an issue uh, for infectious disease. It impacts every other uh, part of healthcare, so uh, infections after surgery, you know, cancer treatments, and so on. So uh, a lot of work was done to to bring in that additional value of having these new drugs available. And uh, the the important thing of that is that that work was was validated during the trial, and the the scoring system that was trialled to try and simplify all of that was effectively validating the more detailed work behind it. As a consequence of that, two drugs were were selected, um, Zavisefta and Fetroja from Pfizer and uh, Shionogi. And um, the subscription contracts for those drugs were uh, entered into. Now, everybody calls this, this system Netflix. It's the quotes Netflix system because it's a a subscription 
that is independent of how uh, how much of the drug is used or not. The, the great news is that uh, just last week, uh, the UK government announced consultation that's opened for 12 weeks for a permanent system which will be rolled out not just in England like the trial but across the whole of the UK and that new system has four bands uh, reflecting the relative importance of any new drug that comes along and uh, determined by a scoring system again so a successful product that makes it through to market will qualify for 5, 10, 15 or 20 million pounds subscription payment per year and for up to 10 years and uh, this this effectively decouples the value for the developer from the amount of drugs sold which is really really important for ongoing stewardship efforts to prevent overuse of antibiotics leading to more resistance so at, at an initial sight of the uh, proposed system there are a couple of questions for me one is the relative importance of narrow spectrum drugs so for example targeting a, a specific organism like pseudomonas or acinetobacter versus broad spectrum drugs which would be more widely applicable and the other one particularly important for SMEs is uh, is there a, a mechanism of pre-qualifying for the UK system at much earlier in development. So, for example, in the US, there's a designation called uh, qualified, Qualifying Infectious Disease Product, QIDP, which opens up the uh, fast track clinical development uh, and also may be important in future US uh, Netflix type models uh, that are being considered particularly important for SMEs because a pre-qualification would give some validation to early stage investors to come back into the AMR sector and start to fund some of these companies um, that are being strangled at the moment. The UK consultation on the new system has now gone live and I'd urge everyone listening to have a look at that and input your views so we can make the UK permanent system uh, as effective as possible to really invigorate the uh, AMR ecosystem. And what does success look like to you for this model that will help it then uh, perhaps be used in other areas as well? The thing that we're trying to fix here is the ultimate reward at the end of the goal. If you look at every other therapeutic area it, there's a pretty much a, a well-functioning ecosystem so early stage investors in invest in biotechs the biotechs they may uh, license to uh, a mid-sized biotech who then ultimately license to a pharma company the value at the end uh, which can be more readily measured in areas like uh, oncology that value at the end enables valuations and transactions to occur throughout the whole of the system. The reason that the big pharma companies are not so active in AMR and that the SMEs are struggling for funding is ultimately the final value of these assets is unknown. In fact, I had a, a, a conversation uh, with many investors over 
uh, the last few years. And the principal uh, feedback that many of them give is we can't value opportunities. Fixing the uh, eventual reward for developers, so the, the subscription models, uh, will fix that model. We know how much is needed as well. Globally, many studies are, have concluded that uh, uh, an overall reward of three to four billion over the lifetime of the products would be necessary. And that's necessary because it's costing hundreds of millions of dollars and, and all the risk to uh, develop these drugs exactly as it does for any other drug. We know how much we need. We know what to do. And most of the arguments in the uh, EU and the US at the moment are around how to pay, uh, not what we should be doing. Great. Thank you. Um, infectious disease has been sort of more in the spotlight perhaps in the last few years than than previously and coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic the phrase pandemic preparedness uh, is being used by governments and businesses but how should industry and healthcare systems be preparing is there something they should be doing is pandemic preparedness something that should be top of mind it's interesting isn't it that um with the the COVID pandemic review going on at the at the moment, they're they're first uh, concentrating concentrating in in the UK on um, what went wrong. Um, Sally Davis, I think, uh, reported to one of the parliamentary committees uh, using the phrase "we prepared for the wrong pandemic," so flu, uh, not coronavirus. So I I did some work as a, an advisor to the Milken Institute in in Washington DC they they convened some discussions on pandemic preparedness and one of the elements that is really important is to identify the pathogens of pandemic potential in animals because these spillover events such as SARS MERS and, and COVID you know or potential lab leaks we have to say these are inevitable as we we get due to increasing population and environmental pressures we get closer to sharing space with animals and um, you know, evolution happens and and these diseases can can spill over from from the animal world in, into humans so early identification of, of pathogens of pandemic preparedness is one key to that but the other thing is that when we do that we need to include drugs because uh, what one of the things that COVID has shown us is that there are there are now some concerns about the effectiveness of, va of vaccines. Even with multiple boosters, people can still catch and transmit the disease. And although at a very small level, there are uh, worrying levels of uh, vaccine injuries and and side effects. Uh, and we mustn't forget also that uh, there are still millions of people suffering from from long COVID. So one of the things that uh, we're focusing on in Infex is actually development of a new small molecule drug, uh, which we the program's called COVEX. So this was a, uh, a novel protease inhibitor, papain-like protease, PL-PRO. And that has a, a dual action so it's antiviral prevents uh, replication of the of the virus uh, 
uh, but also uh, targets the immune evasion uh, capability of, of coronaviruses. So COVAX has got great results in, in preclinical in vivo, and we're now going into preclinical development and hopefully we'll be in the clinic in 2024. Now, the thing about this, when we decided to work on this, it, it was driven by pandemic preparedness rather than by a response to the uh, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. The PL Pro target is conserved across a a wide range of coronavirus. Um, So SARS, uh, COVID-19 and uh, the multiple strains that that we've seen uh, mutating from from COVID-19. And recently our scientists have have confirmed that the uh, target that that we're interacting with is also conserved in multiple coronavirus strains that are currently found in bats. What Infex is doing for preparedness uh, in in this case is developing the COVAX drug. And we're seeing quite a lot of interest from the major pharma companies at the moment. So hopefully we can uh, make some more progress and maybe partner with one of those to bring this important new drug to to the market. And you've highlighted there, obviously, um, the cases of long COVID, that COVID-19 is still around and the potential of other infections that are related or in that area. But is there a concern that public interest particularly and then perhaps government interest in infectious diseases uh, and, and farmer interest might wane now that the pandemic is over? There's undoubtedly COVID fatigue not only in the general public after everything that we we had to endure, um, but certainly in the political world, there are very pressing issues now that are essentially a fallout from COVID and, of course, the conflict in Ukraine. And that's the economic woes that we're going through at the moment. There was a, a very positive thing during COVID, and that was the, the whole language around infectious disease and the importance of investment in in prevention, treatment and diagnostics in, in infectious disease was a, a positive. Uh, we certainly saw that in, in the AMR world. But I think we're now seeing the the negative side of that as as I said, people are weary of of the battle against COVID and they're also being bat- battered by the economic headwinds at the moment. I think more generally there's an issue with AMR and particularly public and government attention. We have a number of contacts with um, MPs in the UK and you know, we've been down and been members of presentations and spoken to select committees and so on over the past few years. The thing that comes across is that the AMR agenda is really being driven by professionally led advocacy people in the industry like us, but uh, also the medics that are having to treat people and the some of the civil servants uh, that are, for example, uh, driving forward the uh, Netflix model in, in the UK. The one thing that stands out, and MPs, members of parliament report this, is that they don't get letters from their constituents in their mailbox. 
And it's that that really drives the political agenda when something is in the public mind. And we've talked about this a, a lot at various meetings over the past couple of years. And really, a lot of patients and their loved ones are not aware that the infection that they have or that their loved one may have died from was a drug resistant infection that no one's told that it's AMR. It's usually uh, uh, complications of pneumonia, for example. And if you have a, an AMR infection and it's successfully treated at maybe the second or third course of, of antibiotics before the correct one and uh, the, the one that will treat the resistant strain is used, patients are usually told something like, we have to use another course because the original ones weren't strong enough. So AMR as a concept is not in patients' mind. And one thing that I certainly would like to suggest is that AMR is included, as COVID was, on death certificates. And that would then really start to bring the seriousness of the AMR pandemic to the public attention. Yes, I think that's uh, important there, that uh, education around the topic as well as um, uh, what you're doing on the business side, the two really need to marry together um, for impact. Are there any other lessons from the, the COVID-19 pandemic that you find yourself thinking about or that the life sciences sector uh, you think should have in mind? The first one, Lucy, is AMR doesn't only impact patients suffering from infections. COVID had a massive impact across the whole of, of the life sciences and the economy. Uh, AMR impacts every other element of healthcare. So from uh, hip replacements to C-sections and, and chemotherapy. The other thing that is uh, really important here is that COVID drove very rapid innovation and flexibility, not only in the vaccines, but also in diagnostics. And diagnostics is still massively under-resourced in, in the AMR field, particularly with narrow spectrum drugs targeting a particular organism and targeting particular drug susceptibilities and resistance. That's a, a, a huge area to help. Uh, going forward and is is just not receiving the attention it needs. The other really important area is clinical development, so innovation in clinical strategies. At the moment, we're talking about the Netflix system having to be a, a certain size, you know, billions of, of dollars, in order to justify the expense, hundreds of millions of dollars of taking drugs through clinical trials, which may take five, six, seven years. What if we could innovate and drive some really new regulatory and approval strategies, maybe on a uh, experimental basis or a conditional basis? What if we could develop new AMR drugs for $50 million instead of $500 million? How would that change the, the whole ecosystem? So clinical development, clinical innovation is one area that, that I think would uh, has the potential to make a big difference as well as all of the other structural elements that we've been talking about. Yes, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and it's 
interesting that AMR in general, you've, there's so many threads to this that need to come together um, and that you're working on, that you're involved in. Um, and it's been great to speak to you about all of that. Do you have some closing thoughts that you could leave us with or a key takeaway message that you'd really like to impose? Very interesting question. I um, would like to take you back to 2016. So imagine in 2016 that we were told that COVID-19 was going to happen with globally millions of deaths, lockdowns, $12 trillion by some measures lost from the global market, $400 billion to the UK economy, what would we have done? Well, presumably, if we knew all of that, we would have fast-tracked new drugs and vaccines, diagnostics, innovative public health measures, so that when the inevitable COVID-19 pandemic happened, we'd have been prepared. Well, Jim O'Neill's call to action for AMR was in 2016. And we know the AMR pandemic is now worse than it was then. It's here and it's rising further. The bugs are still going to evolve. But where's the same level of preparation and where's the action? We need to take much more strong action now. Otherwise, the AMR pandemic will be on top of us just like COVID-19 was. Great. Thank you, Peter. I think that's a, a strong message to leave us on. Uh, and lots to think about through that discussion. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and hopefully we'll hear more from you as uh, Infects develops and, and we'll keep track of what's going on.